people for being here this morning. It's really great to be talking to people. <laughs> and for all of you that have been online, uh, thank you for being a part of our service. We pray that the Lord's encouraging you. Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Malachi, chapter 2. We started the book of Malachi a couple weeks ago, and we are working through it, and we find ourselves today in the second chapter, and we're going to be picking it up in verse 10, reading through to verse 16. Again, the context is, is that the Lord has been bringing a word of rebuke to the priests, and he has been uh, basically... Uh, chastising them for their half-hearted worship and bringing their second best uh, as offerings to the Lord. And now he's going to zero in <clears throat> on their marriages. And so uh, there's going to be a couple parts to this message because I'm going to talk to you about divorce and remarriage and I'm not going to be able to do it in one message. So just uh, relax. Uh, why didn't he talk about that? Why didn't he say that? Uh, because uh, we're just not going to have time to do all of that today. But uh, we, will, we will get there. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for the word of God, which is alive and sharper than any two-edged sword. Thank you, Lord, that it is inspired and infallible, and it is a rule for our lives, for all practice, for faith. And we pray, Lord, that uh, we would submit ourselves with joyful trust, not to, Lord God, what the culture or the world tells us is true, but, Lord, what, in fact, you say is true. So may you bless and encourage, Lord, each and every heart to pay attention to the Holy Spirit, and to the Word of God. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Malachi chapter 2, starting at verse 10, I'm going to read. So if you have your Bibles, you can follow along. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously, treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of the fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously. And an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, being awake and aware, yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But he did not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit. And why one? But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. 
For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garments with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. All right. Let's just make a few observations this morning about our text because it is dealing with the Israel's priests and really not only the priests but society in general of their betrayal to each other and ultimately to the Lord. And it should be noted that when we as individuals or small groups of people do not live up to or fulfill what is normally expected of a Christian, it's not only affecting me or us, but everything that we do affects the corporate body which we are a part of. No one is blessed in isolation and no one sins on an island. And just as ripples occur from a rock that is thrown into the water, so our decisions concerning whether we will honor or disobey the Lord is going to be like ripples that flow out and touch people around us. Just as our obedience and the blessings of the Lord flow out to people around us, so does our disobedience. It not only affects us, it affects everyone around us. All you have to do is look at the family unit. When someone in the family unit is not walking to family code, it doesn't take long for the whole family to feel the effects of the decision of the one. Just as when the family is getting along, the whole family is happy in getting along because the blessings of one also ripple out to everyone in the family. It's the same in the family of God, in the family of faith. Amen? It's been a long time since I've been able to say the amen because there's no one in the, in the room to say amen back to me. So we have a charge from the prophet Malachi through the Lord in verses 10 and 11 about communal betrayal. There the Lord says, the Malachi says to the people through the Lord, have we not all one father and has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of the fathers? Malachi asks the people a very simple question. He says, are we not all under the same authority? Do we not all have the same heavenly father? Do we not all have the same God who has created us? Do we not all have same access to the spirit? that brings us together? Have we not all received the same covenants or promises through our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob? Were we not all given the same covenant and law by God through Moses? Do you not understand, he says, that when we obey, we all prosper and we all rejoice together in God's providence and goodness? And do you not understand that when we disobey the Lord, that we all suffer together when we profane or violate God's word to us? And the, the, God's word is simply full of these illustrations. I mean, when you look at them coming out of Egypt and going into the promised land, 
Was it not always a few grumblers or complainers that brought an incredible amount of heartache and judgment upon the people of Israel? Was it not just the 10 spies that came back with a bad report? And what was the result? The whole generation that came out of Egypt had to die off in the wilderness because they believed the report of the 10 and it cost them a generation. So what Malachi is saying to them is, do you not realize that we all have the same father and the same God and that when you deal treacherously with one another that we all are going to suffer together? And then Malachi gives a specific example of how the people of Judah and specifically Israel, Jerusalem, God's people and the priests have profaned God's word. He gives them a specific example, verse 11. Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem for Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution which he loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. What's the specific example that he is giving them as a community of believers? He is saying that Israel has dealt treacherously, committed an abomination, and profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves. And what is the holy institution that God has ordained and that he loves? Marriage. Marriage is God's idea. And they have profaned it and violated it by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. Now, what does that mean? Well, in this verse, God is talking about Israel nationally. And as we drop down a few verses, he is then going to apply the same principle to, of marriage individually. But it was God's will for Israel that when he called them out of Egypt and brought them into the promised land, that they would be a people that are in such covenant with God, it was as if God was married to them and they were married to God. Now, if you have your Bibles, Deuteronomy chapter 7 talks specifically about God's will nationally, corporately for the people. There, in Deuteronomy 7, starting in verse 1, it says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess, all right, so when you go into the land of Israel and cast out many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the uh, Perzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and every other ite, Seven nations greater and mightier than you. And when the Lord God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods." So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. 
But thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars and break down their sacred pillars and cut down their wooden images and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. That was God's desire that they would worship the true and living God and that they would show all the other nations around them by God's blessing on them that there is no other God like Israel's God. And the greatest derailment and the easiest way to get Israel off course was through marriage and sex. Now, this command had nothing to do with prohibiting marrying someone because of their ethnic background, uh, their nationality, their skin color, or their origin. That has nothing to do with it. This command is spiritual. What God is saying is, is that you cannot serve me and other gods. You cannot serve me with divided hearts. You cannot have divided affections or goals. God says the reason why you need to eradicate all of these seven nations is because if you start intermarrying with them, you are going to have your hearts derailed and pretty soon you are going to have false pagan worship in the midst of it. And the worst thing is, is that you are going to call it wisdom and you are going to call it spiritual and you're going to say it is God's will. Now, this tells us exactly how God feels about marriage. It's holy to him. It is his holy institution and that he loves marriage. The other thing that it tells us is that God is jealous for his children. See, as a pastor, I'm jealous for you. So when I see somebody goofing off and doing stupid things or disinterested in the Lord, or making choices that are totally unbiblical, I get jealous. Now, you say, man, Dale, he's such a hardhead. Man, like he's just always in my face. He's always talking to me about Jesus. He's always got the Bible. He's always saying, thus saith the Lord. I just can't stand the guy. I get it. But I can't turn it off because I'm your shepherd. And as a shepherd, I want to see God's sheep walking in truth. And one of the greatest truths that I can impart to you is watch who you marry. Because God says that you should marry within the faith. There's no ifs, there's no but, there's no gray in it at all. God's word is crystal clear on this matter. There is no such thing as missionary dating. Now, I know a lot of people that have done missionary dating, and I realize that sometimes it's even turned out for them for good that their partner has come to the Lord and got saved, but it doesn't always happen, and it isn't commended in the Scripture. God is jealous for his children. Why? Because God is, like, insecure? No, the exact opposite. Because he loves you and me so much, 
and he knows the paths of life and joy that he wants to protect you from yourself. From yourself. And let me tell you, when the hormones are raging and the emotions are just like somewhere out in outer space circling Saturn, it's pretty tough to talk somebody off the cliff. Oh, but I love him, Pastor Dale. Yeah, okay. What about Jesus? Do you love him? Oh, yeah. Then why don't you obey him? Well, nobody's told me that before. Well, I'm telling you now. I don't like you, Dale. I get it. Now, just think of your heritage if you marry outside the faith that you were brought up in. It's just not about you. It's about the heritage that's going to come after you. That's what God is saying here. Don't you realize that your decisions to break covenant with God has serious eternal consequences for your family and their families and their families and their families and so on and so on because you decided to look upon serving God as a light thing? And think of the blessings that can come to marrying a godly person and bringing up your children to know and love the Lord. Now, of course, we don't know what our kids will choose because they must choose because God doesn't have grandchildren. Your parents can't choose Jesus for you. I can't choose Jesus for you. You've got to make your own choice. But if you choose Jesus, just think about the godly heritage. And if the Lord should tarry, all right, let's just say hypothetically the Lord tarries for another 1,000 years. I know, people are rebuking me already. But let's hypothetically say that. How many generations are going to come out of your loins? Exactly. A lot. Now, I don't know whether your kids are going to grow up and serve the Lord. They have to make their own choice. But as for Sandy and I, uh, basically my motto in my house has been Joshua 24. As, as for me in my house, I'll serve the Lord. End of story. If you want to bring an unbeliever home, I said to my daughters, don't expect a warm welcome from me. Because it ain't going to happen. Well, that's just the way I'm wired. Now, just think, many of you sitting here today are already experiencing four generations of family. So, your parents are still alive. You're still alive because you're here. Your kids are alive, and they're having kids. Four generations in your lifetime. That's a pretty powerful decision that you have to make. And that's just in your lifetime, less than 70 years. Why is God so stern about this, if I can use that word? Because they're breaking covenant with his holy institution. And Israel needed God-fearing people to get Israel, to keep Israel going. Now, Abraham instructed his servant to what? Go to his family and find a wife 
for Isaac. He said, don't take a wife from, from, from people around here. You go back to my family and get a wife for him. Why? Because Isaac was the continuation of the promise God made to Abraham that your descendants are going to be as the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea. You need to get this right for your boy. What about Jacob? Jacob went back, different circumstances, but he went back to his family, and there he married in his family line, to whom 12 sons were born, from which the 12 tribes of Israel came. Solomon went wacky and turned his heart from the Lord, and it says in 1 Kings 11, uh, verses 1 to 3, but King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, all of these nations that were driven out by Joshua, from the nations of whom the Lord has said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them. We just read it in Deuteronomy 7. Nor they with you, surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. And Solomon clung to these in love, and he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. And this is the same truth that is taught by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and 15. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Why? What fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord or agreement has Christ with Belial or Satan? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? Do you know the answer? Zero, none, nada, nothing. And God says in verse 12, those who profane my covenant and are fully aware of the choices, you're living in a dream world. Look what they do. Verse 12, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob, the man who does this, being awake and aware, yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts, living in blatant disobedience and yet bringing an offering to the Lord of hosts. The Lord says, this will not do, this is unacceptable. You must walk the talk or else bring reproach on the name of the one whom you claim to love and serve. In other words, you cannot have one foot in the world and one foot in Jesus. You're going to have a very sore groin. We might think it's working, but in God's economy, the math doesn't add up, which leads us to verse 13 of our text because the Lord brings now a second indictment upon these people. And here it is. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. What's the Lord saying here? He is telling his people, you're not crying because of genuine repentance. You're not crying because you feel convicted deep in your spirit that you have to get right with me. You're not even convicted that your choices are wrong. You're weeping and crying because you want to cut a deal with me. You're weeping and crying because you want your own way. You want me to actually violate my own word and agree with you. So in effect, the Lord says to them, that ain't going to happen. 
You need to rend your hearts and not your clothes. And don't come to my altar and try to bribe me with offerings and tears. They are misplaced and you need a recalibration of your spiritual priorities. And look at their response, verse 14. And yet you say, for what reason? The people of Israel asked the Lord, for what reason have you disregarded our offerings and not looked upon our tears? Don't you love us? Don't you care for us? And the Lord says, I love you so much that I'm not going to say yes to your prayer requests. I love you so much that I am not going to change my word or my will concerning you because though you might not understand it, I know more than you. And I have a bigger and a better plan. Now, the Lord goes from their national sin of committing spiritual divorce by basically following after other gods. And how did they get there? By stepping outside of God's will and marrying foreign women. And their hearts were uh, captured and they went astray. Now he's going to get personal with them. Look at verse 14, the end of it. Because the Lord has been witness. They're asking, you say, for what reason aren't you receiving our offerings and paying attention to our tears. Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you've dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But he did not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit. And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. Do you notice that he's talking to the men here? He's talking to the priests. And there's lots of background information I'm going to give you next week on why. So, again, I know you're asking all types of questions. You're going to have to come next week. Now, verse 16, For the Lord God of Israel says, I love divorce. Well, he says he hates divorce, for it covers one's garments with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed, second time now, in two verses, therefore take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. I want to read these verses to you now in the New Living Translation. You cry out, why doesn't the Lord accept my worship? I'll tell you why. See, the Bible isn't that hard to understand. It's the parts that we understand that are, it's like, wow, really, God? I'll tell you why. Because the Lord witnessed the vows you and your wife made when you were young. But you've been unfaithful to her, though she remained your faithful partner, the wife of your marriage vows. Didn't the Lord make you one with your wife? In body and spirit, you are his. And what does he want? Godly children from your union. So guard your heart. Remain loyal to the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So guard your heart and do not be unfaithful to your wife. 
Now, I don't have time today to talk in great detail about all the ins and outs of biblical marriage and divorce, but I am going to pick it up next Sunday again, and I am going to separate myth from fact. So tune in next Sunday because I'm going to teach on the subject of divorce and remarriage because I just can't go over a text like this and read it and everybody's wondering, well, what does that all mean? So I'm going to pick it up next week and I'm going to talk more about it. And if I don't get through it next week, I'm going to do it again the week after. But today, in closing, I just want to make a couple observations and then we'll wrap it up. Number one, God does not hate divorced people. He hates divorce. God loves people. And he loves the world and he loves all the sinners in it no matter what they have done. Because if God hated everybody that sinned, nobody would be in heaven. Amen? If God hated people who committed adultery, no adulterer could ever be forgiven and enter into heaven. If God hated fornication, no fornicator could ever enter into the kingdom of God. If God hated liars, no liar would ever get into the kingdom of heaven. I couldn't make it because I've lied. If God hated cheaters, no cheater could ever make it because I've cheated. You go, Dale, what kind of guy are you? I'm a sinner just like you. That's the kind of guy I am. I mean, I don't go around doing this and putting, you know, but sometimes Dale just don't cut it. So if God hated all people who sin, whatever sin it might be, there would be nobody in heaven because God would hate everybody, but God loves everybody. What he is saying here is that he hates the act of divorce. Number two, God hates divorce because it breaks the promises and the intentions and the vows of the married couple that they took before God and before one another. And when you make a vow at the marriage uh, ceremony, you should think about what you're saying. I love, I love the traditional vows. I, Horace, take you, Zelda, to be my awfully wedded wife. No, lawfully wedded wife. What? In sickness and in health. To rich or poor. I am making a vow to you that I am sticking with you. And God is there to witness those vows. And if you think that you can just walk into a court and say, ah, irreconcilable differences, marriage is God's institution, it's not man's. God thought about it right at the very beginning when he put Adam and Eve in the garden. He ordained and officiated the first wedding recorded in the Bible, Adam and Eve. And he said that one man shall be married to one woman for the rest of their lives or till death do them part or till the Lord comes back. Number three, God hates divorce because men and women are breaking their promises to God and one another, and these vows are not suggestions or options. They are the glue that keeps marriage together. They may sound sweet and sentimental at the wedding ceremony. 
I counsel young people that want to write their own vows. And I go, you can write your own vows as long as they express the traditional intent of vows. But if you come up with something airy-fairy, you're going to have to find another pastor because this is too serious and too solemn to be messing around with. So they may sound sweet and sentimental at the wedding ceremony, but it takes faith and not feelings to keep your word to God and one another when things are less than ideal in your marriage. Number four, God hates divorce because it's a violent act. It causes incredible disruption to the family unit. The collateral damage done to children and to the man and the wife themselves is just absolutely incalculable at the time. It wounds a heart and a spirit so deeply that it takes so much grace, reflection, and the Holy Spirit's work to change a heart to heal it. It's a violent act. Number five, God hates divorce because marriage and family are his design and it's the backbone and fabric of a healthy and vibrant society and nation. And you can talk to my wife right here, Sandy. She's been a teacher for over 30 years and she will tell you from experience the strength that comes to a school, a classroom, a home, a city, a church when kids come from strong marriages. So you're asking, what's the biblical teaching on marriage and the reasons for divorce? Well, that is too big of a question for me to answer today, but I will start next week. I'm going to pick it up, and I am going to talk about all of these things from the Bible. So tune in next Sunday. So what do we want to take away as we close today? Come on up, uh, worship team. What we really need to focus in on today is not the act of marriage and divorce, but what were the reasons behind it? What were the reasons behind it? It was the spiritual condition of our heart. And what was the spiritual condition of the heart of the priests and the people? They knew all about God. They knew all of the traditions. They knew how to go to the temple. They knew how to offer a cow, an ox, a sheep, a bird. They knew how to sprinkle the ashes. They knew how to burn the incense. They knew how to bake the bread. They knew everything like the back of their hand, and yet they were not a surrendered people. That's what God is focusing in on. Tradition without surrender. God told them that they were nationally in a relationship with him of divorce, and they didn't even really know it. They were serving and praying and burning incense to foreign gods, and then the next day, they'd go to the temple and worship God. As a result, God said that their spiritual decline and apathy as a nation at large is not only upon them, but it's going to get worse. Second, they couldn't see or comprehend the big picture, that their choices were going to have consequences for the coming generations that were coming up behind them. Third, God said that it was just plain disobedient. And do you need any greater reason than that? Well, why? Because it's in the Word. Because God said it. Because God knows more than you. Because God loves you so much that he put it in his Word. 
Don't come weeping and all stressed out and asking why God doesn't receive your offerings when you continue to live rebellious lives. Profession without obedience is deception. And lastly, it begins in the heart, which is at home. Mom and dad, God is your guest. He is your witness. And how you treat your spouse of your covenant and your promise is something that is very, very near and dear to God's heart because it is his holy institution. And so he says in this text, take heed and guard your spirit. Let God deal with your attitudes. Talk to him. Talk to one another. Seek counsel, but do not give the devil one inch to operate within your marriages. Amen? Now look at I know this is not the last word on the subject, all right? There's a lot more to say, and I'm going to try to say it by the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will encourage each and every heart to be fully surrendered to you today. I pray, Lord God, in this incredible and most important subject of choosing a mate, that we would take heed to your word, especially all the single people. And I ask, Lord God, for every marriage that has taken vows and sealed them in your presence and before guests and with one another, that, Lord, you would pour grace upon grace into their hearts. Help them, Lord God, to see from your perspective, your desires. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. The one thing I will close, if you can stand with me because we'll sing with the team. God is our faithful husband. And he's married to the church. And we're his bride. And it's great to know that he will be faithful to us to the very end. Amen? Amen. Let's sing together.